Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and boy, feels good to say those words, because, you know, I've been running around, traveling, doing lots of stuff for another show called The Restless Ones, which you may have heard. Uh, and uh, it means that I've had a lot of uh, a lot of time away from the studio. But I'm back today, and it's that time of year when I take a look back at the previous 12 months and consider some of the biggest tech stories to come out over the course of the year. Now, this year, 2019, it was a pretty darn packed one when it comes to news. And things change so quickly, and there are so many high-level stories that it can actually be pretty easy to forget stuff that happened earlier in the year. So I'm going to walk us through some of the big themes of the year and some of the stories that center on those themes. And there are so many things to talk about that I'm actually going to have to do two episodes about it. I originally was going to really try and cram it into one, but that just wasn't very practical. I would just be rattling off headlines. And what good is that? So this one's going to be filled with a lot of stories about mistakes and things going wrong in the world of tech. So I'm calling this episode the bummers of 2019. But um, here's the bad news. There were a lot of bummer stories. So some of those are going to probably spill into the next episode too. But uh, I'll do my best to, to, to lighten the mood a bit in the next one occasionally. Now, one of the big themes that has actually become a pretty common one over the last several years is the theme of data breaches. Like I I have previously called earlier years like the year of the data breach. But I think the same thing can be said of 2019. So a couple of years ago, the credit reporting company Equifax dealt with a massive data breach that resulted in a host of investigations in the United States, both at the state and federal levels. And the company ultimately agreed to pay out somewhere between $575 and $700 million uh, as a result in fines. They were also giving people the opportunity to lay a claim for at least some sort of compensation for this data breach. People were invited to apply for a payout of $125. Not exactly a princely sum when you consider having your personal information raided due to insufficient protections on a corporate level. In September 2019, Equifax announced that people claiming a payout would need to provide proof that they had also enrolled in a credit monitoring service by October 15th, because that would show that the people had concern about their own credit rating and their own personal information, that they weren't just looking for money to get money, but that they actually were actively trying to keep track of this stuff. Uh, or else the claim could be denied. And the FTC had previously already warned that due to the number of claims, people were likely to get far less than $125 because there was only a pool of around $31 million that had been set aside for these payouts. You know, that $575 to $700 million, that wasn't set aside for payouts. Only $31 million was set aside for payouts. And I know it's crazy to say only $31 million, but when you look at the scale of this data breach, you realize that that means if everyone who was affected lays claim to a payout, you don't get very much. But this whole mess has prompted more conversations about data security and corporate accountability, which is a good thing 
it's sad that it comes at the expense of this terrible mistake, but at least people are talking more seriously about this. Hopefully something will actually happen because of it. Now, we've seen lots of these stories over the last several years, and they really do show no sign of slowing down right now, which is unfortunate. In 2019, there were some truly notable examples across different industries. I pulled data from Norton, the information security company, to look at some of the big ones. Uh, one of those would be Capital One. The financial company uh, reported that hackers were able to access a large amount of data affecting 106 million records in the company's files. Most of those records were for credit card applications rather than established accounts. So it wasn't like the hackers necessarily got a lot of credit card info, but they got a lot of application information. And when you think about the info you need to provide when you apply for a credit card, uh, it includes stuff like, you know, personal information uh, that is really important to you. And it might be mundane stuff like your name, which, hey, you know, no big deal. Someone knows your name, okay. But it might include your email, which, again, that, maybe that's more frustrating or, or irritating. But then there's also your physical address, which gets a little more spooky, scary. Uh, your credit score, your income, maybe your social security number, essentially all the stuff it would take for someone to steal your identity and sell it off on the dark web, which is not very cool, Capital One. A hacker named Paige Thompson targeted a third-party cloud computing company that uh, Capital One had relied upon to host the credit application services. She exploited a vulnerability in a web app firewall to get illegal access to the data. She was arrested for the data intrusion, and then she was held in a men's detention center. Uh, she's transgender, and this gets into a whole thing with criminal justice systems and the treatment of people who are transgender, which honestly goes way beyond the scope of this podcast. But I'll just say that when I read that she was held in a men's detention center, that really upset me. Now, I don't disagree with her being detained, she broke the law, or allegedly broke the law. She denies this. I more object that it wasn't in a more appropriate setting. Anyway, she's awaiting trial for the case. Uh, that trial is scheduled right now for March 2020. Uh, she has pled not guilty to the charges. Another company to experience a data breach was DoorDash, the food delivery service. The company experienced the breach in May, but didn't disclose it until September 2019. A third party accessed the information of nearly 5 million drivers and customers without permission. The information they were able to access included personal information, including the last few digits of credit card and bank account numbers, but not the whole number. It was just that last little string. It also included the hashed passwords of many account holders, so it's always good to change your password if you make use of services that later reveal that they've been uh, hacked. It's always a good idea to change that information. And also, well, I'll get to it, but don't use the same password everywhere. It's a little spoiler alert for a, a future discussion. So early in the year, the service Evite had a data breach that affected 100 million records, again, exposing customer information like names, addresses, phone numbers, and the password that they used for the account. And again, the exposure of passwords drives home that importance, right? Use unique passwords with different services. That way, if one service is compromised, you don't have to worry about the hackers accessing everything else you use using the same password. 
If you're using one password for everything, then you're essentially opening up the door. As soon as one breach is effective, all of your services have been breached. So don't use the same password for everything. Use a password vault. Uh, use stuff like two-factor authentication. All of that will help minimize your risk. It doesn't eliminate it, but it minimizes it. And if you find out one of the services you use was compromised, change all that login information right away. Now, the medical industry also saw its share of data breaches. The American Medical Collection Agency, which is a company that collects overdue payments for various medical labs, so essentially these are the folks who come after you if you haven't paid certain medical bills, they also had a breach. Hackers accessed more than 20 million records, and the information included not just personal information, but even stuff like credit card information. The actual breach began back in the summer of 2018, but the vulnerability remained unpatched until March 2019. In June of this year, the company filed for bankruptcy protection, so, you know, things are just going great for them. And close to home, Georgia Tech suffered a data breach when some third party gained access to a university-owned database. The database had tons of personal information on current and former students, as well as staff and faculty at the college, including things like social security numbers. In total, 1.265 million people were affected by that data breach. The college is reaching out to offer credit monitoring and identity theft protection services for those affected by it. But still, yikes. The U.S. government also was not immune to data breaches. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, had a data breach not because some hacker broke into the system, but because the agency accidentally released files containing sensitive information, such as the personal info of more than 2 million people. Sad trombone noise insert here. Now, according to the U.S. Inspector General, FEMA violated the Privacy Act of 1974 by releasing this data to a third-party contractor. The contractor was in charge of securing temporary lodging for people who were affected by emergencies and disasters, so like a fire or a flood. But the data FEMA provided was far more extensive than what was actually needed for this contractor to do its job. And so that data included stuff like banking information and bank transit numbers and stuff like that, stuff that did not need to be shared. Now, considering that this breach affected people who were already dealing with emergency situations that were bad enough to necessitate a relocation, that's a, that's a big, big ouch. Making matters worse is that even some of the companies that are dedicated towards security and privacy have had data breaches in 2019. Take NordVPN, for example. That was a service that, that I've used in the past. A VPN is a virtual private network, and the purpose of a VPN is to allow a user to log into a remote server and then use various internet services so that they can't be traced back to the end user. Now, at first glance, that might sound like it's shady, but it's actually a really useful service if you're concerned about your own data security. You can use a VPN when you're in areas where you can't be certain of the security of the network, and that helps improve your own security. But... Then this year, word came out that NordVPN had an internal private key exposed back in 2018, which created the possibility for hackers to create a server and host it on the NordVPN service as if it were a valid NordVPN server. Now, that would mean that an end user who was relying on NordVPN might end up logging into one of the hacker's computers 
thinking it was a secure VPN server, and the hacker would get to see all the traffic coming through that computer. NordVPN has stated that since the breach, the company has patched this problem and that the company doesn't keep a log of any user activity, so hackers would only capture any traffic that happened on their own server during that breach. They wouldn't have gotten traffic information from any other servers on the NordVPN network. They wouldn't be able to look at historic data because the company doesn't keep any. Still, that might come as little comfort to a community of users who presumably have subscribed to the service out of a desire to maintain privacy and security. Now, these stories are pretty discouraging. And to be honest, it's just the tip of a huge iceberg. According to a report from Javelin Strategy and Research, there were 5,183 reported data breaches in the first nine months of 2019 alone. Now, keep in mind, those are reported data breaches. There are likely many more that have either gone undiscovered or unreported. Now, those breaches represent nearly 8 billion records exposed. The rate shows a 33% increase in breaches compared to 2018. Most of those breaches happened to companies with fewer than 100 employees. So these weren't like the big, big news items like Capital One or DoorDash. There were some good news items in the report, however. Not everything was dour. Credit card security has improved thanks to chip technology. So there was actually a decline in credit card frauds. So that's something to be thankful for. Now, it can be a hassle just to practice good, secure internet habits, as I've covered in previous episodes of Tech Stuff. As users, we all have a responsibility to protect our data as best we can. But if we want to do useful stuff with that data, Ultimately, we eventually have to hand it over to other entities. And when these other entities have data breaches, it's also a breach of trust. If we don't trust in the systems, things fall apart. Now, I think it highly unlikely that we're going to see fewer attempts at data breaches as time goes on. It only makes sense we're going to keep seeing them and probably see efforts increase over time. So hopefully, we'll have more success stories revolving around foiling a data breach. But the world of information security is typically a seesaw type of thing. The hackers get better at cracking systems and exploiting vulnerabilities. Companies get better at patching the holes. But then the hackers look for different holes, and the entire cycle repeats itself. Meanwhile, people like you and me get caught up with our data potentially at risk, which is kind of gross. Well, let's stick with some more bummers. Um, I figure if I front load the episodes with bummers, then I can make some space in the back half for some more fun stuff. But first, let's talk about financial performance. So 2019 saw some pretty rough quarters for a few companies. One of those was Uber. Now, I mentioned this in an earlier episode this year about fake it until you make it, but Uber leads the way among ride-hailing companies in a category you don't want to appear in, which is the most money lost per quarter. Now, to be clear, all ride-hailing companies are losing money. None of them are profitable. No one has figured out how to make a business model that has a profitable side as of yet. But Uber is losing money on a scale that's pretty monumental. During the second quarter of 2019, the company posted revenues of $3 billion, which, come on, that's, that's a lot of cheddar. But they posted losses of $5 billion. Woof. Uber's CEO stated that a large part of those losses came from the IPO process that Uber went through, the initial public offering. 
The company had bought back shares that belonged to employees, which posted in the company records as an expense, but that was a one-time expenditure. Uber won't be buying back shares again in the future. Still, analysts say that even taking into account the stock compensation cost, Uber would have lost more than a billion dollars, and that's just one quarter. That's not all of 2019. So if my math is right, there are four quarters every year. So the question is, can Uber find a way to be profitable in the ride-hailing and related businesses, or will it have to bank on investors bailing the company out again? I'm worried we're looking at another bubble that's just about to burst, but I hold out hope that companies like Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hailing services are able to turn things around, preferably while also treating their employees well and ensuring the safety of their customers, which are also ongoing issues with many of these ride-hailing companies. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break. Now, speaking of safety and ride-hailing, it's also important to hold up Lyft to the magnifying glass and not give that company a free pass while raking Uber over the coals. Numerous women have come forward in lawsuits against Lyft, stating that they were the victims of assault. They also say the company did nothing to prevent those assaults and they didn't do enough to ensure passenger safety. And on top of all that... They say that Lyft ignored complaints filed after the assaults took place and then downplayed the events to the media. One lawyer states that there's evidence that Lyft purposefully withheld cooperation from law enforcement officers who were investigating these claims. Now, Lyft is not the only ride-hailing company to come under scrutiny due to safety concerns and reports of assault. And there are also cases in which drivers have been assaulted by passengers. This is an ongoing story, and there are a lot of discussions about measures that could help protect passengers and drivers alike, but the rollout is likely to be regional and staggered over weeks or months. So it's not exactly the super-fast response you would hope for necessarily. All right, let's keep that bummer train a-moving. In January 2019, the utility company Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, declared bankruptcy. Now, this company serves customers along the West Coast, and in 2017, it was found guilty of starting a series of wildfires in California, which then put the company $30 billion in debt. That's billion with a B. PG&E emerged from bankruptcy in September 2019 after agreeing on an $11 billion settlement with insurance companies. Now, this is the same utility company that would shut down power to California residents in a series of planned blackouts during a particularly windy season in order to avoid a similar situation in which perhaps a broken power line might start a wildfire. The blackouts affected more than half a million people in the San Francisco region. So that was not a great story, and the tech sector obviously covered it quite a bit with so many tech companies located in the Bay Area. Now, at least seven coal mining companies in the United States have declared bankruptcy in 2019, which marked the first year in which more U.S. citizens got electricity from renewable sources than from coal-powered plants. At least 33 oil and gas producers have gone bankrupt as well. And as you might imagine, this has made lots of folks in the coal and oil industries upset. And while I definitely don't want to see people face hardship as companies close down, I don't want to see people out of work. I also think the move away from fossil fuels is a necessity. So it's my hope 
that employees of these companies can find work in the renewable energy sector. I think it's imperative we rid ourselves of our dependence upon fossil fuels, but we also have to make sure that the people who are employed by that industry can find good work elsewhere, and they're not just left in the lurch. We have to make sure that whatever plans we have to transition away from fossil fuels also take into account the people whose livelihoods depend upon those industries. Now, speaking of going elsewhere, what do you do when your company is in financial crisis and the company's main product is renting out office space to tech startups? That's a question that WeWork has been trying to answer for much of 2019. So WeWork was launched back in 2010. The company leases out office space to tenants in markets around the globe. So essentially, it leases out space in buildings and then sublets that space to smaller companies. And in that regard, it's not really a tech company in of itself, but its clients are in largely the startup tech space. It's kind of the, the market that WeWork targets specifically. WeWork offices tend to have amenities that you might find in a startup that has a lot of venture capital and angel investors behind it. So, you know, a lot of tech journals have covered the company's rather tumultuous 2019. WeWork initially planned to hold an initial public offering in September 2019 when it would become a publicly traded company on the stock market, only things did not go quite as planned. First, something that would have made my eyebrows go up was that the founder, or co-founder, Adam Newman, liquidated around $700 million worth of WeWork stock before it went into its initial public offering. Now, that does not necessarily mean that Newman lacked confidence about how the stock market would treat his company. But a lot of folks tend to interpret those types of moves as kind of a message that the founder doesn't think things are going to go well. So they're cashing out before the value of their stock tanks. Now, when the IPO paperwork became public in August 2019, journalists pointed out that the company had been experiencing some pretty massive losses, not unlike the ride-hailing businesses I talked about earlier in this episode. There were questions about whether or not WeWork would ever be profitable. So also like the ride-hailing services. In fact, I think there are a lot of parallels between the two. There was also a report that in some WeWork offices, the company had included stuff like these little phone cubbies or phone booths that had equipment in them that was emitting formaldehyde fumes, which isn't a great thing either. WeWork ended up scuttling its plans for an IPO and postponed those plans uh, to late 2019, which as far as this recording is concerned, uh, still hasn't happened, those, those IPO plans. Newman actually would step down as CEO shortly thereafter. He reportedly got a $1.7 billion buyout from SoftBank, which effectively controls WeWork now. WeWork began to sell off some other companies it had acquired over recent years, and it also laid off about 20% of its workforce. Reporters noted that the company had also started to explore ways it might back out of some leases in various regions, while simultaneously announcing plans about opening new space in different cities. Also, just here's a personal note to SoftBank. You can pay me a billion dollars and I won't even saddle you with a company that has no known pathway to profitability. It's a bargain. Just show me the money. Now, not to get too sidetracked by all this, 
But I feel like WeWork and the ride-hailing services really fall into that fake-it-until-you-make-it category I covered on a recent episode of Tech Stuff, you know, the one where I ranted for like 45 minutes. I find it perplexing that the motivating factor for investment isn't profitability, but just company growth. As in, a company doesn't need to show it can be profitable if it can continue to expand rapidly. But in my mind, that just means that now instead of a small, unprofitable company, you've got a large, more complex, unprofitable company. Now, I suppose the hope is that you'll eventually, quote-unquote, make it up in volume, meaning that whenever you achieve some predetermined magical scale, your operations will become profitable. But from my perspective, it seems like that very rarely happens and that you're more likely to find yourself pouring money into a sinking ship. And then people like Newman get the benefit of a lifeboat that's loaded down with cash. Anyway, I'm not an expert in corporate finance, so it's entirely possible that I'm overlooking something obvious. It's just to me, this model doesn't make much sense. I get the desire to grow year over year, although I'm not crazy about it. But without the profitability part in there, I mean, growth is unsustainable. You'll eventually collapse in on yourself because no one's going to keep giving you money just to grow. All right, how about uh, we chat a bit about everyone's favorite social media platform that continues to play an increasingly pivotal role in how we access information and misinformation. So it's time to check in on what Facebook was up to in 2019. And boy, howdy, there was a lot going on. I'm not even going to cover all of it because you could do a full episode on just the shenanigans Facebook got up to in 2019. But anyway, let's look at some of the big ones. Uh, For one thing, the company received a hefty fine for the Cambridge Analytica scandal in which Facebook's app permissions allowed a data collection company to access not just the information of people who downloaded the app or who installed the app, but also the data of all of their contacts on Facebook who did not opt in. The fine was $5 billion, a princely sum, no doubt about it, but there are critics who have said that's not nearly severe enough of a penalty, considering the scope of the betrayal of trust and user information. After all, Facebook as a company earned $22 billion in revenue in 2018. So yeah, $5 billion is a lot of cash, but when you're looking at numbers like $22 billion in revenue— A $5 billion fine might not be enough to make Facebook actually take greater steps toward ensuring user security. In June 2019, Facebook announced the launch of Libra, the cryptocurrency project. Facebook also announced the Libra Association, a consortium of 28 companies that would form the initial group responsible for bringing this cryptocurrency into reality with a promise that more companies would soon follow to join the consortium. So... Think of it as a digital currency, not too different from something like Bitcoin, although the Libra cryptocurrency would be based on real-world assets and not just its own uh, sense of value among the community. However, this announcement Facebook made was met with scrutiny, particularly on the part of various governmental agencies around the world. And to be fair, it's more accurate to say Facebook is the leading voice in this project Uh, and is not the only entity behind it. But for the purposes of most reporting, people tend to simplify it by saying Facebook. Now, governments began to call for regulations and rules to guide 
any sort of cryptocurrency effort, particularly in the wake of some high-profile missteps by Facebook like the aforementioned Cambridge Analytica scandal. By October 2019, more than 25% of those original companies had walked away from the Libra consortium. The first to leave was PayPal, and in an interview with Forbes, PayPal CEO Dan Shulman said that when they were able to see how far the project needed to go before it could roll out, and they paired that with the amount of work that PayPal needed to do to meet its own internal goals that were not related to Libra, they said, oh, well, it just didn't make sense for us to be part of the consortium. We needed to focus on us first. Now, whether that was the same justification for the other companies that bailed on the Libra Association, I can't say. But companies like Visa, Stripe, MasterCard, and eBay also left the association. With the increased interest among various governments to create rules to minimize the risk of something like a new cryptocurrency, it seems like Libra has a long way to go before it becomes a practical currency, if it ever does. Another big Facebook story revolves around the social media platform's role in disseminating information and misinformation. This was a big theme throughout 2019. Mark Zuckerberg stated before the U.S. government that he feels Facebook shouldn't play a role in fact-checking stuff like political ads. So if a politician wanted to post an ad to Facebook that contained incorrect or outright false information, they could do that, and Facebook would not intervene. As the company continues to deal with accusations that it is profiting from efforts of political manipulation and deception, this has been an area of focus for a lot of folks. Moreover, Facebook's algorithm favors posts that drive a lot of engagement. So likes, shares, comments, that kind of thing. Now, in turn, that generates more screen time for Facebook and thus more revenue for the company. So the company has a financial incentive to give a platform for stuff that gets people riled up, which in turn contributes to things like political extremism which I'll talk more about in our next episode. It's a pretty ugly situation, and Zuckerberg so far seems to be intent on absolving himself of any responsibility for creating a platform that can be gamed in this way. And the platform itself benefits from this. I, I can't stress that enough. Facebook makes money by having these sorts of uh, posts on it because it generates a lot of activity. And that activity translates into more screen time, which translates into more money for Facebook. So they have a financial incentive to keep things going the way they are. Toward the end of 2019, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States began to take a closer look at Facebook's proposed plan to integrating its various properties together, uh, those being Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram. So while Facebook is trying to do this, it is also under investigation by the U.S. government in an antitrust case. A tighter integration between the different platforms would make it more difficult to separate down the line, and it's possible that the U.S. government will demand Facebook to break up its various properties and spin them off as independent companies. So there's a chance that by the time you hear this, the FTC will have filed an injunction against Facebook from integrating these services further. And the hits just keep on coming. Between when I started making notes for this episode and when I actually sat down in the studio to record it right now, yet another story about Facebook broke. In mid-December, Facebook sent a letter to the United States Senate. The letter revealed that the company could locate users even if they had opted out of being tracked 
with location data. Now, I would argue that this isn't as big a news story as it was made out to be because Facebook stated that it could use metadata, such as tagged photos that indicated a location and time, as well as who was in the tagged photo. But that seems pretty intuitive to me. If I go to a party and I take a photo of you, you're at the party too, and then I post from the party and I tag the location of the party and I tag you, then Facebook has data on where I am, where you are, what time we were there, and all of that. I mean, it's all there in Facebook's data even if we don't have location information turned on regularly. Other ways Facebook could make guesses as to where people are depend less on direct user input and more on stuff like IP addresses, which aren't as exact. They can give you a general idea, but they're not foolproof. Now, Facebook defended its policies by stating that it could detect suspicious logins using this approach, such as if a person in one part of the country were to suddenly appear as though they were trying to log into Facebook, but from an IP address located on the other side of the world. That would indicate that maybe somebody else had gotten hold of some login information and they were trying to steal someone's Facebook account. Of course, Stuff like VPNs could also create this scenario. You could be using a VPN to log into Facebook from the other side of the world for various reasons, and that could raise a false flag, but I do see what Facebook was trying to say. Now, one last Facebook story before I take another break. In mid-November, a thief stole several hard drives from the car of a Facebook employee, and those hard drives included unencrypted payroll data for thousands of Facebook employees. The data covered about 29,000 people who were working for Facebook in 2018. So some of those folks presumably no longer work for the company. Now, in this case, we're talking about physical hardware taken from a car. So this was not a data breach in the traditional sense. Now, I'm surprised the data was unencrypted. I would imagine that in most cases, you would want to encrypt that information even on just a physical hard drive. But presumably it wasn't because no one ever assumed the hard drives would leave the possession of Facebook. Still, yikes. All right, we got a few more bummers to go, but before we do, let's take another quick break. So a big story to play out over the course of 2019 was the world's response to the Chinese telecom company Huawei which I've also covered in a previous episode of Tech Stuff. The company isn't that old, but it already stands to be one of the major players in rolling out the technology that will enable 5G wireless connectivity around the world. In fact, with the outstanding orders the company already has in Europe, it leads the pack in terms of 5G equipment sales. This is despite some hefty restrictions placed upon Huawei, mostly from the United States, In mid-December 2019, it was revealed that Chinese officials had leveraged tremendous pressure on European countries to sign contracts to purchase 5G equipment from Huawei or face consequences, such as canceled trade agreements, you know, wider trade agreements throughout China. Now, at the heart of the dispute is a concern that Huawei has close ties with the Chinese government and that as a provider of telecommunications equipment, it's possible the company could potentially build in backdoors and other features that would allow China to access vital communications channels across the globe. In fact, such backdoors had previously been found, although they could have been vulnerabilities not intentionally placed there. But still, 
it raises some eyebrows. Huawei argues that it's actually a private company and it doesn't have any direction from the Chinese government and that such fears are unfounded, but it hasn't stopped countries like the United States from eyeing Huawei with suspicion. And to be fair, China is putting some pressure on various countries that are, you know, conflicted about using Huawei. And that seems to send a message that China's kind of deeply integrated with the company's, you know, day-to-day operations. Uh, Although Huawei says, no, 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 this is just a government looking out for a company that exists within its borders. That's it. It's not a sign that it's a Chinese government operation. So it's a complicated thing, and it all depends upon whose perspective you believe. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Speaking of China, the country's conflicts with Hong Kong have spilled over into the tech space in various ways. A large number of Hong Kong citizens mobilized against the Chinese government, initially protesting a policy that would allow for extradition of Hong Kong citizens accused of certain crimes, and they would be extradited to mainland China. Now, given China's reputation when it comes to justice, uh, the too-long-didn't-read version of that is it's a very bad reputation, many Hong Kong citizens protested against this policy. They stated that it was undermining the independence of Hong Kong, which was something China had previously promised it wouldn't mess around with. While China would ultimately withdraw the extradition bill, this was really the push that got the ball rolling and protests continue to this day because they extend beyond that. You could think of that as the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, The tech angle of all of this, uh, there's the video game company Blizzard that I recently covered on Tech Stuff. Well, they make a digital card battle game called Hearthstone. And during a Hearthstone tournament in Taiwan, a Hong Kong player named Ng Wai Chung, or uh, Blitz Chung, that's his gamer handle, showed support for Hong Kong protesters on camera during an interview. Blizzard banned Blitz Chung from the tournament. Blizzard also banned the... Uh, the people who were conducting the interview, even though they were doing their best to try and avoid appearing like they were enabling this. Uh, And that ban of Blitzchung would prevent him from playing in any Grandmaster tournament for a year, and he would have to forfeit the prize money he had accumulated up to that point in the tournament. When pressed to explain why they leveled such a harsh ban, Blizzard stated that Blitzchung had violated a policy that prohibited players from doing anything that would tarnish the company's image or offend the public. Now, that raised a pretty strong counter-objection among the gaming community at large. Many people hypothesized that Blizzard's response was largely motivated by the fact that Tencent, a Chinese company, owns a stake of ownership in Activision Blizzard. They don't own the company outright. They just own a percentage. There was also speculation that Blizzard didn't want to endanger operations within the Chinese market. The Chinese market represents billions of dollars of potential revenue, so they didn't want to put that at risk. Critics also pointed out that Blizzard's punishments toward other gamers around the world in response to vulgarity, you know, clear-cut cases where someone has violated that policy, they were rarely as severe as what Blitzchung experienced. Blizzard subsequently walked back the punishment a little bit. They returned the prize winnings to Blitzchung, but they kept a ban in place for half a year rather than a full year. Interestingly, 
Chinese companies, namely Tencent, have partial ownership in other video game companies, not just Blizzard. And some of these companies also produce games that have a tournament circuit. And in some of those cases, there seems to be no restriction on what players can say about the situation in Hong Kong. So that raises questions about whether Blizzard was being proactively responsive for fear of upsetting the apple cart, or if possibly other companies have seen the backlash that Blizzard faced, and they're setting themselves apart by taking a different approach. Oh, and I I should also backtrack just a little bit. So remember how I mentioned Huawei is a leading company when it comes to 5G technologies? Well, that reminds me I should quickly address that AT&T and the company's attempt to leverage the concept of 5G and how that got a lot of scorn in the tech community. Okay, so part of this story hinges on the fact that 5G isn't just a single technology or anything like that. You can't just say 5G relates to this specific implementation. It's really more of a family of technologies and implementations that enable wireless data throughput at really impressive levels. And we typically describe it as speed, but the data is not actually moving faster than it was before. It's just that more data can travel all at once through a channel. So instead of thinking of it as like a one-lane road where you can just somehow defy the laws of physics and drive faster than the speed of light, it's more like you have an ultra-wide highway where all the cars can travel at the speed of light simultaneously. So you get more cars, more data. But they're not traveling faster than they were before. There's just more of them. The rollout of 5G is taking time because it requires new infrastructure. You can't just send an update out to existing antennas out there. You actually have to go install new ones and make them in a different density than older generations of wireless technology. You also need to have phones and other devices that can actually receive 5G signals to take advantage of it. They can't just do that with their standard stuff. So it requires a whole lot of hardware upgrades across the board. Now, AT&T decided to kind of, you know, leapfrog all of that. The company made a change and they pushed out an update that would replace the LTE indicator on certain AT&T smartphones with a symbol saying 5GE, and the E stands for evolution. So it's a 5G evolution network device. Now, critics said that AT&T was purposefully confusing the market, that it was positioning these phones as if they were already taking advantage of true 5G networks and were operating on actual 5G technology, when, in fact, they were actually relying on the older LTE 4G technology. Making matters more confusing was that AT&T was actually rolling out legit 5G infrastructure, but it was only available in limited areas, and sometimes that would just be a small area within an actual city, for example. According to analytics company OpenSignal, the AT&T 5G e-service did not outperform either T-Mobile or Verizon's LTE service. And so the general conclusion was that AT&T was trying to take advantage of an emerging technology to make it seem like their product, which according to tests wasn't superior to the competition, was somehow more capable. It was dirty pool, as Gomez Adams would say. Now, I should also add that while it looks to me like AT&T deliberately tried to fool folks with this whole 5G evolution network approach, the situation does actually get pretty complicated because the generations of wireless connectivity are kind of loosey-goosey. 
you can't point to, say, 3G and give a set of firm specifications on how much data could be sent over a network per unit of time. The technologies within a generation evolve over the course of that generation. And if a company can upgrade hardware to take advantage of those evolutions, it can see improved data rate. So, in other words, not all 4G networks or devices are equal. Some are capable of much better data transfer rates than others. It's even possible to have a really good network and a device on an earlier generation outperform a later generation example. So, it's possible for you to have a really good 4G network and device outperform a 5G device on a 5G network. Possibly. It's... (laughs) <laughs> the the Venn diagram is narrow, but it can happen. So it's not as simple as saying 5G is faster than 4G. It's definitely true that the potential of 5G far outpaces that of 4G. In other words, the, the best implementation of 5G is always going to be better than the best implementation of 4G as far as data throughput is concerned. But potential and reality are two different things, so it all depends on how it's implemented in the area that you are in. And yes, I find this all to be incredibly frustrating because as a consumer, I just want my stuff to work really well and for it to be really fast. And it's not always an easy thing to determine. I'll wrap up with a couple of short stories. Uh, One is the saga of the 737 MAX which I covered in a recent Tech Stuff episode. After two catastrophic crashes, governments around the world ordered that Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft be grounded pending a full investigation into what went wrong and any adjustments that needed to be made. Boeing subsequently made changes to the aircraft's systems. Uh, The particular system at fault was meant to be a safety feature, a system that would kick in to counter the 737 MAX's tendency to tilt its nose upward. The problem was that the safety feature could override pilot commands, and if you had a single sensor failure sending incorrect information to the the safety system, that's what could cause tragedy. Now, as of this recording, the fleet of aircraft is still grounded, and Boeing has suspended manufacturing any more of them for the time being. The last story I wanted to mention quickly is a follow-up on a company that I've covered in a past episode of Tech Stuff. That company is or rather was, MoviePass. So MoviePass aimed to create a subscription-based service in which customers could purchase a monthly pass to see first-run movies in various movie theaters. But movie theater chains weren't super keen on this idea. MoviePass had many notable ups and downs, most of which I covered in my episode on the company, but somehow it managed to hang on longer than anyone really thought was possible. This was despite the company having to walk back its unlimited movie pass for a much more modest offering, which I imagine must have led to a pretty large number of customers canceling their subscriptions when suddenly their unlimited movie pass became, no, you can see three movies, or you can get discounts on tickets. And thus, MoviePass had to secure loans from various sources just to stay in business. Now, eventually the credits had to roll on this company. And in September 2019, that's what happened. MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe released a statement that the company would cease operations immediately, and uh, it did. You know, MoviePass had failed to turn a profit, and the opposition it faced was considerable. While the company tried lots of different approaches to right itself, those choices ultimately either didn't work or actively worked against the company, alienating the users and inviting various lawsuits to come in. It was 
pretty ugly stuff. All right, that wraps up this episode. But in our next episode, I'll continue to look back on technology in 2019. There's still a lot of bummers left on that list, including some that go beyond bummer to outright disastrous. But there are a few cool things in there too. So we'll get to those as well. So if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The best place to do so is on social media, over on Twitter and on Facebook. You can find us at TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 